The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. In the way that Instagram sometimes serves me up stuff from almost weeks ago, Kev, I saw your Rosa with um, with with the house uh, with the house horse that you have. She's winning stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's bless her. She she entered her first ever dressage. Yeah, and won two classes on the first time ever. No, yeah, brilliant. She must be absolutely chuffed. It's going to cost you an absolute fortune, Kev. Have you got oh. your wallet ready now? They've really? started making noises about uh, a horse transporter. Oh. Uh, I'm like, no way. Uh, actually, the cost a, of those things... You don't, well, mean a ho- you don't mean a horse box. You mean the actual thing that comes with a bedroom up the front and everything, yeah? <laughs> yeah well, that's it, yeah. No, oh. I mean a horse box. Um, but, uh, yeah, they can... Those things, the horse box, the general horse box is reasonably you know for what you get they, they, you can get reasonably yeah. decent ones yeah. for, for re- relatively low prices yeah. because it is literally an iron box on wheels yeah. but there is one thing i will never be doing in my life so a horse driving a horse <laughs> around the country oh fa- nope. famous last words kev no 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 god gave horses four <laughs> legs so they can walk themselves no kev but they can't walk 50 miles to the next event well that's their fault <laughs> Watch this space, everyone. Kev is going to be giving Star a lift in the horse box very, very soon. The Fuji cast. I'm telling you, Kev, it's happening. If, if it's been mentioned, it happens. Because it wasn't that long ago that somebody mentioned a horse and you said, oh, I don't think so. And then look what turned up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, My well, life is terrible. Oh no, your life's not <laughs> terrible, Kev. Look, it's uh, just, it's. Uh, I know, I, I know you. I know you love the horse, really. Um, right, welcome to the Fuji Cast. You and your questions. A newly married Kev. Um, is this your in showbiz terms now, Kev? Where are we now? Five or six? <laughs> three, but three. two to the same one. This is kind of three B, isn't it? Now, yeah. um, your questions from our electronic mailbag, and of course, also through the Fuji Cast private Facebook group that you're welcome to become a part of. If you want to send a mail the old-fashioned way, send it through click at fujicast.co.uk. If you're not a Fujifilm shooter, don't worry, it's a big community. Whatever flavour you shoot, you're very, very, very welcome. Kev's Book of the Week this week. What do we have, Kev? Oh, we have a a really sombre one, actually. It's called Requiem um, by the photographers who died in Vietnam and Indochina. Oh, my word. I have heard of this book. Wow, that's heavy. Goodness. Okay, that's the Book of the Week. Um, Scott Johnson is our, our guest this week. We like Scott, don't we? Um, uh, one of a the, bit. <laughs> a bit. One of the ex-photographers. Um, we've been rolling out um, um, some of our friends of the show uh, during the during the summer break, and um, and Scott is is one of those. And um, he actually, we recorded this before. I think it might have been the, the very first ex-weddings. All those years ago, Kev. Yeah. Um, or was it no maybe it was the second one has Scott spoken at both or was it just one of them I can't remember he came what was the one at the second one yeah and he went on stage and everybody had to stand up and he did this sort of he did an exercise class he did yeah (laughs) that was good fun I didn't realise Scott well you'll find out um, started his uh, photographic life on the on the cruise ships yeah 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 a lot of them do Schilling did that, Michael Schilling. Michael Schilling, yes, he did. A lot of them did it. Do you feel yeah. you've missed out, Kev? No, oh, I haven't got sea legs. No, would I'd you not be, be able to I'd do it? No. I'm going out uh, very shortly. It's in, uh, I think, two, three weeks' time. Maybe it's a little bit longer. To the forts just uh, off the mm. um, the Kent um, uh, coast. 
Fort Boyard. Is it? Is that what it's called? No, but Fort Boyard was a TV show, wasn't it? I think they used the one off the coast of Jersey, but similar things. Isn't oh, it? I, I know see. what you yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the, uh, no, that's not. The, but that you used to be able to clamber aboard them, but I think with with weathering and various other things, you can't go. Uh, you can't go aboard them anymore. But people, um, these these sort of islands and and. Uh, these these sort of old fortresses that are off the shores of the UK. Some people have actually claimed that. What well, wasn't one called Sealand, the Kingdom of Sealand, or something? Yes, he's a king. He's he's, yeah. he's claimed it. Yeah, yeah, it's his own country. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he had his own passport system and everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Brilliant. I love all that stuff. Yeah, well, mate, very interesting photo stories. And um, but but actually, there was another one in Italy, and this this name just completely escapes me. But uh, a business a businessman that that uh, that did the same sort of thing. He set up a. It was offshore, and um, it took a long, long. They set up basically a party headquarters. Took a long, long time to remove him. But when you try and look for photographs of the time, it's not greatly, it's not greatly documented, which is a great shame. Really is. Love to see behind the scenes of what was going on in all these. Well, maybe I shouldn't. Yeah. No, I would as well. I tell you I, what, I, it's fascinating with that kind of stuff. I bet Mrs. Stevenson was out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Mrs. Stevenson's become sort of. Uh, I think she's going to become one of these folklore legends. <laughs> Mrs. Stevenson, right? Um, Mrs. Stevenson. <laughs> no, that was a different movie. Right? <laughs> questions. You're, yours. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Go on then. This is a question from Graham Harris. Uh, Harry's probably he says lens cloths question yeah. mark there are those who spend a serious amount of wonga on a specialist kit yeah others like me it's whatever I'm wearing what's your <laughs> lens cloth of choice <laughs> I'm the same as Graham actually it's a, a t-shirt or a shirt or whatever's handy at the time probably not a woolen jumper that's useless just smears but um you, you normally when you need to use this thing you know we're near the bag that has the expensive uh, loin cloth in it uh, or lens cloth, I call it a loincloth. And you don't... Uh, see. Remind me never to clean my cameras with your <laughs> cloths. It's never around when... It, I just rip up old pants, Kev. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'll wash them first. <laughs> They're never around when you need them, though, are you? Are they, rather? Uh, no. I, I can't remember the last time I wiped a lens, but yeah, I'm the same. I would use my, my yeah. whatever I'm wearing. Yeah. There's a reason, Kev, when every, every time you've borrowed a lens cloth from me, it's got a slight Y on it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you never realised, did you? <laughs> oh, that's proper grim. <laughs> it is a bit grim. But, yeah. I mean, you, you should really use a lint-free cloth, shouldn't you? I have no idea. Should you? Yeah. I don't really don't know. The, or, uh, the Fujifilm lenses, or at least the, the kind of higher-end ones, all come with uh, little bags, don't they? Little yeah. kind of bags that, that act as a, a lens cloth as well. The trouble um, is they're in the bottom of the box, Kevin. What do you do? You throw the box away. So you've never oh, got one I of these Oh, I throw all of those away. No, yeah. that's why you haven't got them. That's why you have to use my wife fronts. <laughs> but you should really use, I think it's a lint-free cloth. What do you do when you've got, you know, because inevitably it will happen in your eyepiece where, where it gets a bit grubby inside that eyepiece. What do you clear that out with? My finger. What? Kev! Yeah, just stick my little finger in there. Do you? Oh, Wipe I it around a bit. No, you shouldn't do that. Oh, that's I what I do. Oh, right, didn't get okay. that grubby, though. I can't remember. Like, the last time I did that oh, was... Oh, they do. They do. Sometimes it happens... I notice, like, if you go... Uh, you know, if it's an autumn wedding, and it's quite... Uh, what's what's the word? Um, hot and sweaty outside, oh, and then you yeah. go inside to an air-conditioned oh, yeah. room, and then everything steams up. Yeah. Yeah, then I'm, then I'm using my shirt to, to kind of clean it out. 
But I, well, I was always told you should get a little bit of uh, methylated spirits or something, put it on the on the end of a Q-tip, and then very carefully wipe inside. Try not to leave any of the cotton. Get yourself a good Q-tip, of course. And then, then that gives it a sparkly. You'll be surprised. You'll think, my word, I wasn't seeing straight at all. Make sure that Q-tip is not made of plastic. Well, it won't be these days, will it? Well, they are. A lot of them still are. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's a different story. But yeah, yeah okay, whatever. You can you can use methylated spirits and Q-tips. I'll use my jumper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Neil from Lee Arlock. Love the show. It's become a real part of my Mondays. And you guys, well, yada, yada, yada. I have a question about photographing children when going about street photography. Generally, I don't focus on children as the main subject matter of my work, but inevitably they'll appear when making street pictures. Last week, I was approached by a parent asking where I would be showing the pictures. And I'll admit it made me feel properly odd and, dare I say, awkward like I was being accused of something quite nasty and underhand. What are your thoughts on pictures of children in street shots? Uh, from Lee, very good point. We've talked about this a little bit before. It's such a difficult thing, this, isn't it, Kev? Because inevitably, if you're making street, if you're taking street pictures, they are going to appear at some stage. And look at all those beautiful books that I know you love, the, 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 so the, the, the classic streets of London, the East End um, books that are practically made up of, uh, really, of, of children playing in the streets. And it's a, it's a document of our time that that bit, I, th I fear, will be lost, won't it? That bit, because people are too afraid to take pictures of children for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think, so there's two, there's two elements here, I think. One is, you're, you're quite right that it's becoming more difficult to document rather than just take pictures of children but just document everyday life and that's not necessarily because people are are less happy to be photographed but because now we have the internet we have social media you know of course back in 1950s when these beautiful books were being made it was a privilege to be to think somebody was taking your picture you know it was like wow that strange fellow over there is taking a picture of us yeah. um and and if it made it into a book or or you know or picture post or something even better now of course we've got facebook we've got instagram all of this stuff where people are rightly a little bit more cautious about well what's going to happen with this picture now what what i will say is uh, i've never been approached and um so i can't i don't really have any personal experience of 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 the situation but i would also feel proper weirded out by that yeah. um because the implication is a little bit like it's grubby well yeah. you know what are you doing you grubby old man yeah and i think what i would do is i would just explain you know just as we just we just talked about just say you know i'm a i'm a street photographer i'm making historic pictures and uh you know have a look on the back of the camera if they weren't happy with it then especially you know definitely if there's children in there then I would just delete it. Uh, you know, so simple as that. I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's worth taking around uh, small postcards or something that sh show just a couple of uh, the images that you've made, and and with your your contact details, your Instagram or whatever on 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 the reverse. So maybe oh, maybe yeah, offer them a print or yeah. something. But yeah, whatever. But I wouldn't allow the the worry of that because it is a worry to stop me from doing my thing. I you know I got sent a photographer sent me a picture the other day and it was a wonderful picture on the beach of um, some people playing sport. And in the bottom left-hand corner was a, a, a little girl playing with her shovel and spade. What do they call it? Shovel and spade, yeah. Shovel and... Well, well she, she wouldn't have a shovel and spade. She'd have a bucket and no, spade. Bucket and spade. That's yeah. the words I'm looking for. Bucket yeah. and spade, yeah. And he said that his wife had looked at the picture. And his wife is a teacher. Not Mrs. Stevenson, but another teacher. 
and so she's all into you know safeguarding and all that kind of stuff and and she said you 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 just can't show that you can't put that picture and he was asking for my advice and my advice to him was it's a brilliant picture and i would have no problem showing that picture whatsoever you know the the, the little girl couldn't even see her face you know wasn't doing anything other than what little girls do on beaches you know and and if you go into i i hazard a guess that if you went into any restaurant or pub or anything on that same beach or that coastline area there will be pictures of the past of people on that beach playing yeah, and yeah. you know swimming and all that kind of stuff so you know we must be cautious that we don't lose the uh, the right to continue to document things as time goes by uh, especially uh, you know just because people are so um, uh, you know, conscious of, of of social media and the negativity around social media is is not right. You know, mostly most things uh, photographically are used for good use, good purposes, yeah, yeah. mostly. And I'm yeah. I'm talking like ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Yes, there is the odd weirdy bloke and more weirdy woman out there. Um, but that that's our relationship. That's our relationship with social media. We love to hate it, but we couldn't live without it. You know. Take my Facebook away! How dare you! Don't yeah, want to see pictures of me yeah. on that. By the way, while we're about it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's it's people's perception, and yet it, you know, if he'd taken that picture on a beach, he took that picture on a beach with I don't know what camera it was, but it was a proper camera. Whereas if somebody was stood, I guarantee that if somebody was stood next to him, uh, sorry, not on the beach, but on the street picture that we were just talking about with the child in the street, I guarantee that if somebody was stood next to him with a mobile phone taking exactly the same picture, that person, that parent would not go up to the person on the mobile phone. Just wouldn't, just wouldn't do it. And that's, you know, that's a dilemma. I understand the parent's point of view. You know, I, I, I get that. But at the same time, it should be we should guard ourselves against yeah. uh, losing the, the the ability to oh, you know I, I tell you what, keep on Kevin, shooting. No wonder more and more and more people now are making street pictures on their their phones because it is so much easier, isn't it? You know, it's just a phone. All oh, right, then okay, go about your day. Mm, kind of, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, good thought. Um, legally, though, Kev, you um, I know that it changes in every single country. Check your. Your local laws, obviously, but legally in this country, where did Lee stand with that? If it's in a public place, then yeah, absolutely. If it's not in a public place, no, then then it's you can still generally you'll still be able to take the pictures, but it's what you do with them. Yeah, in terms of editorial, um, all that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of crossover rules and regs. Um, but generally, you know, if it's not being used for commercial purposes, if it suddenly ended up on an Amazon billboard or you know Apple billboard or something, then yeah, that'd be very different. Um, but yeah, if it's public place, you can you can even take pictures of police doing their things as long. The only, as far as I'm aware, in the UK, the only type of police activity you're not allowed to take pictures of is any kind of anti-terrorism activity. Um, how you're meant to identify what's what, I don't know, but but that's that's the law. Yeah. yeah. Right, yours, Kev, from from Facebook. Keep sending your questions in. By the way, send them to the email click at fujicast.co.uk or on the uh, the Facebook page you will find um, the, the question thread the only place where you should leave your questions yeah if you want them featured on the show or of course you can become a patron and then if you put questions oh, yes. in the patron Straight you away. get you get bumped to the front yes um, right Graham Scully says hi chaps question regarding the raw files on the XT4 I'm a big fan of using uh, settings to create film simulations, saving my custom white balance, clarity, shadows, etc. As a user setting, I notice when I shoot in RAW only, the settings from my user settings seem to be imposed on the RAW file itself. Right. This is great. But if I were to open uh, the file on, say, Capture One, will the colors, etc., be just like the ones I see 
when I view the image on my camera, or will the settings only be there on the RAW file if I use Fujifilm X-RAW Studio, or perhaps not there at all? Well, the picture you're seeing on the back is is the JPEG version with um, simulation, isn't it? So you're not going to see the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you, you know, if you're if you're shooting JPEG and you download that image, what you see in the camera is what you're going to get on your JPEG. Um, however, both Capture One and Lightroom do allow you to apply film simulations uh, in retrospect they're not quite the same as the, you know, so in, in Lightroom, you could say, right, um, I'm going to apply the Acros film simulation. It does a good job, but it's not exactly the same. Uh, really, the only software that will give you identical results is XRAW Studio. And the reason for that is because it it sends the file back up the wire to the camera, processes it, brings it back again. But remember that RAW files are, are that's the point of RAW files. So if you're shooting RAW and you are struggling to get the look that you are getting in your camera and you want to keep that look shoot jpeg right you know oh. that's the answer yeah yeah that's the answer a lot of people do this i find I've, you know i've had discussions with people about this they seem to think that and i'm not saying that this is the case for graham at all but um they seem to think that you've got to shoot raw because that's the that's the professional way um and you know you need to have raw because it gives you more latitude and you can do more with it which you can absolutely but if you're then trying to get it to look exactly the same as it did in camera you don't need to shoot raw you need to shoot jpeg Uh, it's pretty simple really i mean you can shoot raw and jpeg and use raw as the backup file maybe if you want to do some different edits later on but yeah if you're if you're constantly trying to recreate the stuff in the camera then jpeg is your friend future film x raw studio will also do it but it's it's quite a laborious process in terms of sending the images up the camera and back again and what have you Right. Do you want a do you want a techie one? We've sort of have one one tech to another one. Um, Peter Foot from Stanford. Uh, afternoon, guys. Just purchased the Fuji XC4 camera as a second body to go with my X Pro Two. A lot of the reviews are negative about the lack of grip. There aren't any unless you purchase the additional thumb and hand grip, etc. How do you find that camera? Kev, the the XC4? Yeah, I did use it. Do I have it? I'm not even sure if I've got one. I did definitely have one uh, on loan. I don't know whether it was a loan one or whether I bought it. (laughs) That sounds sounds really obnoxious, I know. But (laughs) I know that I sold my XE3 for a reason, probably to buy an XE4. Right. Um, But maybe I never did buy it. I loaned it. But yeah, so uh, anyway. Uh, well, some practical but, bits here and, and, and how I did, you use it. I did, uh, I did use it, yeah. and the, the It is small. It is small. I liked it, I have to say, but I do understand why people struggle with it a little bit. If you've got big hands, yeah. especially. But I, what I like, and, and this is the XE4 is the camera I recommend to most people when they say, I just want a camera that, you know, just has uh, shutter speed, aperture and ISO. That's yeah. all I'm interested in. Yeah. That's that's your camera of choice because there's very little in terms of buttons. They've scaled it right back, they paired it right back, and made it as small as possible. Yeah, uh, yeah you can buy an, an additional grip and all that kind of stuff. But it's a tiny little camera with a you know with the latest X trans sensor in it, which is you know you're going to get great autofocus. You're going to get brilliant lenses to bolt onto it. So yeah, it's 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 a good good camera. Uh, I have to say I haven't been down the rabbit hole of reading the reviews of it. Um, but I would imagine that people with big hands will will find it a little bit of a struggle. Well, aside from the hands, he says, shooting from the hip has been a revelation, and it's mm. great to take discreet pictures of friends, family, and Mrs. Stevenson, especially when in <laughs> electronic <laughs> shutter mode with the sound turned off. Oh, that's proper covert stuff, that is, Peter. Uh, anyway, that's nothing to do with my question, but I thought it might be worth sharing for the benefit of others. My question is about the number of focus points. 
in oh. the menu, <laughs> we will get there, Kev. In the menu, I have the option of selecting 117, 9 by 13, or 425 bracket, 17 by 25. In which, in which scenarios would I benefit from either setting and other factors to consider, please? Regards and Peter Foot. How would you use it? Well, the menu of having these options of focus points. All those choices these days as well. Once upon a time, it was just one in the centre. Yeah. So the reason why you have multiple options there, by the way, is because I'm not quite sure whether it's a hangover now, but it's certainly in X Trans Three and before. You would have the um, phase detection pixels, and that's phase rather than face, were the ones in the middle. So the bigger, the middle kind of two-thirds of the sensor, if you like, were the most sensitive autofocus points. And the ones on the outside were not phase detection pixels, and so they were less sensitive. Now, I might be wrong, but I think now that all of the sense, all of the latest cameras, all of the sensor is phase detection. So that might be a little bit of a hangover in terms of the reason why that option is, is there. But the reason why you would use one over the other, given that point, is perhaps if you don't want if you're if you are a, a habitual mover of the focus point as some people are i'm not i lock i lock mine in the middle but some people move it all over the place but you find yourself mostly focusing around the middle two-thirds then you can it, it stops it from drifting stops it from drifting outside too far ah, okay. um you know and then coming around the other side and stuff like that so so that's that's really it but yeah it's the phase detection pixels are the uh, the most sensitive ones you know in the older cameras they were generally in the middle two-thirds how do you lock yours in the middle so you can't nudge it? Uh, just you can hold, hold down the um, the joystick. You can yeah. hold that down and lock it. Yeah, that's that's typically the way you'll do it. Right. Uh, but just don't move it. I don't I don't do that. By the way, I don't lock it. I just don't move it. I just I don't really find myself nudging it. I, because the Fuji system is so easy to move compared to other camera manufacturers, I tend to move mine around all the time. Oh, look, it goes right, left, up, down. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I I normally switch off the um, touchscreen because yeah. if you have your touchscreen, you can switch off the the um, focus point mover on the yeah. touchscreen yeah. and still have it as a touchscreen. But I, for a long time, I was moving things around my nose and all that kind of stuff, so I, I usually switch off the touchscreen. Yeah. Well, that be horrible. You smeared it all all over the back as well with your nose. That's another horrible thing, isn't it? I could. I should. Yeah, that's when I get your underpants out yeah. to clean it. <laughs> you need my wife on to care. That's <laughs> what you are. I'll send some down for you. Um, right. Shall we hear from uh, today's guest, Scott Johnson? How long has Scott been uh, an ambassador? Do you know? I should have asked him this, shouldn't I? Perhaps I did. I, I don't know. Oh, it's, oh, it's wow. been a good it's few years, while. though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But of course, it's not also- as long as me. <laughs> it's not a competition, Kev. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so it all starts out in quite a different way for Scott photographically, as you're about to find out. We've been talking to some of our friends of the show and some of those moments that we've we've really loved, such as last week when you went to speak to Robin Revillius. Uh, and this week, it's um, an ex-photographer, an ambassador for the brand. This is Scott Johnson. So, Scott, for the second time in as many weeks, I'm talking to a photographer who started his pro career working the cruise ships. You're another one. I feel I've missed out. I know, you what did. What have I missed out by not working the cruise ships? Whatever you've heard, it's all true. Is it? It's all true. <laughs> well, mostly I've heard about seasickness. I'm not sure, sure I'd, I'd have enjoyed that bit. I mean, You d- know d- what? There was only one time, and it was my first week uh, on the ship, that I 
got anywhere near feeling a little bit green around the gills, but thankfully I kept my lunch in, so it was all good. So where were you, where where were you cruising? Did you have a particular route? Was it know, the Caribbean or was it? I was actually very lucky. So I we started in Miami and then went all around the Caribbean through Panama up. Mexico, Costa Rica to San Diego. We dropped off there, picked up, went across to Hawaii and back a couple of times and then did the route in reverse. And then I finished up in Alaska, which was, it's breath- if you haven't been, it's breathtaking. I mean. No, I haven't been. No. And, and how long did you do that for? Uh, I did nine months on there. Uh, it was enough. My liver couldn't take any more, if I'm honest, so I had to come off. <laughs> So so it's the drink fest that I've heard it is as well then. It is, yeah. All good things happen in the crew bar. Um cuz oh. there's nothing much to do. If you're if you're at sea for 5 days and you're on the way to Hawaii, there's it's, there's generally nothing to do. There's dark table, there's dartboard down there, uh ping pong, pool, which is difficult to play on a cruise ship, you can probably imagine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good fun. So so what what were you photographing then? Everything. If it moved, I, I did weddings on ships, I've done I did oh. the captain's table. Um, we had what was called frequent cruises, so anyone were doing like their fifth and tenth and twenty-fifth cruise on the cruise line, we go up and photograph them with the captain. Um, oh. uh, formal nights, embarkations. I've been dressed up as a eagle, a moose, a pirate. <laughs> uh, you name it, mate. I've I've done it. Oh, it sounds very showbiz. It is dressed yeah. up as a pirate. Do you ever go on a cruise now, or has it completely put you off? You know what? I'd love to do it, but my wife won't Would go. You? She won't go. Won't she? No. Oh, okay. All right. She's seen some well, of those videos on Facebook with the, with the the ship pitching and rolling in the in the rough seas, and she's gone. Nope, that's not for me. No, not. Well, you see, that, that's exactly what I've, I I thought you'd sort of be. Never mind ping pong. You're photographing people. Your studio strobes are sliding to one side. Well, the, the funny thing is, we had um, we had a Fujifilm uh, Frontier on the, in the lab, and um, obviously when you have uh, when it's rough. You worry about cross contamination, the bleach getting in the dev. So we had yeah. to, yeah, that was we had to drain the tanks probably once or twice a week to freshen the dev up because yeah, it was we had to get getting contamination. Uh, you mentioned weddings, so what was the leap to weddings? Something that you did straight after the cruising, or how how did your your professional career start to lift off? Uh, Jessops, like everyone else, I think it was. Uh, I came off the ships, needed a job. Uh, there was a job going in Jessops, and I did that for about. A year because obviously my lab background on the the ships I was running the lab in the local store and it was there I met a photographer and he said um, I'm setting a company up do you fancy it I've gone yeah okay I'll give it a try and then uh, worked for him for about 18 months and then realized that I could do it by myself and set the company up and that was back in 2006 and here we are at the time of recording, 2019, and it's been mm. going well ever since. So how many do you sh- do you shoot a year, typically? Oh, stupid, Neil. I do about 50. It's ridiculous. Right, okay. it's, well, that's not it, stupid. That could be good business. I fell in the trap of... I left um, full-time employment in 2008, uh, and I left... <laughs> so I left on the Friday uh, in, in the May of 2008, and I, the memory is I got to Victoria Station, having left my job, thinking, what on earth have I done? And then the credit crunch hit about three weeks later and everyone had no money. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be in trouble. So I booked everything, everything that I was getting in, I was booking. And then in 2010, I shot 113 weddings. No way. Yeah, 113. 113. 113. And then my, my now wife... How did was, you feel? I was destroyed. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was, I was a broken man. Come the Christmas of 2010, I was a broken man. And my, say my now wife said to me, if we have another year like that, I'm off. I can't do it, and which is fair enough. I was stupid. Yeah. 
So you've halved that number. So that must halved feel it. more. Yeah, that 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 must feel more comfortable. It does. It, it means I can manage, you know, inquiries. Um, I do the odd pre-shoot here and there. I do the odd post-shoot as well. So I like to get brides dressed up and go and do something fun uh, without the pressure of the chef saying, "Come on, the soup's getting cold." So I do that two or three times a year. Um, like a fa- styled fashion shoot so I'm giving more time to myself and now my little girl she's six next week so, so there's, no, I do less weddings so I can spend more time with her really it's, it's, what, it's, it's what we do it for I think you know the stylized thing the, the, the post shoot I didn't realise you did that. That, that that's quite a for somebody who has a more stylized I, I know that you've got a documentary fellowship we'll come to that in a little while but yeah, when yeah. I look at your website I see stylized Thank you. because I, I see pictures like the cliff picture yep. which, which was that was that a post shoot then because that was I'm a thinking so, so the yeah, bride that on makes the cliff, sense yeah yeah it was a post shoot because there's not many people that uh would do it on the wedding day but no. i have no problem putting people in positions like that on a wedding day because the website is filtering people through and they're like i like that and then we'll go and stand in the middle of a field somewhere and get some nice shots at sunset or um you know on top of a you know a bridge somewhere or something crazy but no i like to it's not fair to practice things on a wedding day so i do two or three post shoots a year mainly for me so i can try new two techniques out try some you know new posing and then and then i'll, I'll roll it out if, if it's successful for the year after so it's a, it's a way for me to try and practice rather than do it on the wedding day so do you see yourself as a more starlight is, is that is that really your your emphasis is that what you enjoy more the starlight part of shooting weddings? yeah very much so if, if people come into my you no know, into the showroom and say no we've seen your website we love your style of pictures then I'm like a Cheshire cat because I know I've got you know 20 25 minutes to create something fine art you know very stylized and I like looking for light and you know, I like to pose people properly and you know and you know, when you show in the back of the camera sometimes they go oh my god is that really me I went well yeah of course it is I've just taken it so of course it's you um, <laughs> but it's just giving the confidence in the couple to now I can make something work anywhere really which which is I quite like doing here's that question many new photographers ask when they're starting out certainly in the wedding genre how do you get the destination gigs? I mean, having people pay pay you to go to Italy, and I've seen I've seen Italy and I've seen America on on your site, yeah. um, is all well and good. But how does it work? Both both in terms of well, let's start with let, let's start in terms of marketing. How that works? So I was very lucky. Um, the first few couples that took me out to destinations were friends. So I um, I said, you know, just pay me to get me out there, and I can use it as a marketing tool. So they paid my flight, paid my accommodation. Uh, and then I just used it and, and and put them on the website. And all of a sudden, people start seeing that you you go away. Uh, and, and, and really, it's just good social media, good backlinking in the website, you know, targeting people. So the destination side, we target that quite a lot on, on Instagram and Facebook. So it's just getting out there. And, and say I was in Florence a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was amazing because they've, they've seen... If you, if you don't market it, if you don't tell people you do it, they're not going to ask. So I'm a great believer in, you know, show what you want to do. And if I'm showing destination weddings, generally they'll come through. So, so financially, does, does, can it work? Yeah. There's, I, there's not really only a handful of photographers that that, uh, that, that do what I call, <laughs> I might need to rephrase this, but, <laughs> oh, hang it, I'll say it. Proper destination weddings, you yep. know, where they're actually doing it as a business. Yes. And they're not doing it as as something that's great for ego and, yeah. and good shots just for Instagram. And, and that's the thing: a lot of people go and do it, and and you know, and not earn any money. Just so they can brag and say, "Hey, look where I've been! It's been brilliant." And you know, I'm guilty of that in the early days. And I think we've all been guilty of that. 
uh, but the Florence was is a good example. So proper destination wedding. They covered my flight, hotel, transfers, paid me you no know, the, the going rate as if I was here in the UK uh, for the wedding itself. And then we put a little bit of a supplement on because obviously I was out there Friday, Saturday and Sunday. I flew back on the Monday. So we put a little bit extra either end because I missed out on weddings. But I'm very, very fortunate. I've got a very good photographer that I work with. Uh, and he actually covered weddings whilst I was out there here for, for the company. That dovetails really nicely, actually. You've mentioned other people at the studio. There's three of you at the studio. One of the criticisms of, of choosing wedding shooting as a business is it's not very scalable. If, of course, being scalable is part of your game plan, if that's what you're going into business for. Not everybody wants to. Some people are just happy being the artisan photographer on their own, doing what they do. Mm-hmm. But but is the, is the size of your studio, Scott, part of of that plan to make a scalable business. Yeah, it was. It was always a plan. The reason why I didn't go to Scott Johnson Photography when I set up was because I wanted guys to work with me and for me, uh, shooting weddings and you know doing three or four per per Saturday, for example. But it was finding that, that guy that, or person, photographer, that I would trust to go and do it. I trialled different people. And at the point where you could say, right, you can go off and shoot by yourself, they'd all of a sudden panic and they'd forget how to do things and I never got no, I got more complaints when I was sending other people out on my behalf than I ever had for myself so we stopped that uh, and it's only been the last maybe 18 months that Abs has been going out shooting for me and he's an absolute gem you have um, you have uh, fellowships with both uh, BIP in fact, you've got two with BIP. One of them is a documentary one, isn't it? It is, yeah. it was uh, um, The documentary one is the one I'm most proud of, if I'm honest, rather than the wedding. Yeah, achieving that photojournalism one, as you say, it must have been, must have been a, a pinnacle. Yeah, it really was. It was, um, it was something... Uh, the, the wedding fellowship, for me... I mean, fellowship and qualifications isn't for everybody. I mean, people have tried it, uh, and they thought, you know what, I I'm not a fan of it. And I tell my brides that I've got fellowships, I think I'm a hobbit. They, they just don't, you know, what's a fellowship? So <laughs> it was more for personal progression and personal growth. Um, and the wedding one was, again, was a rite of passage. But I've always seen myself as a photographer that shoots weddings and not a wedding photographer. I enjoy taking street, uh, documentary, environmental portraiture, everything. I try and do a lot of it. So the, the, the documentary fellowship for me meant more because it meant that I was good at something else apart from weddings. And the SW, you've got the SWPP. Is that a fellowship there? or That's a fellowship, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that, that's in, a fellowship. That's in weddings. And, and you're one of only three photographers to hold two master craftsmen within the, uh, the, the, the Guild of Photographers. Yeah, I need to upgrade that. There's four of us now. So there's four? Yeah, there's right. four of us now. It's, so it's like Michelin stars these things. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's the thing. I think, you know, people can say, well, what is a fellowship and, and there's a good friend of mine Dave Stanbury and he, he really you know, nailed it on the head it's like a fellowship is like a Michelin star in photography you know people you know we need to start seeing it like that and if you've got one Michelin star that's great two Michelin stars is really good and getting three is you know for not, there's not many that, that have got three do, do you actually believe they, they bring something of, um, of importance to your your brides and grooms or really is it more for your credentials and credibility in terms of um, well in terms of, of the fact that you're a judge for things like WPPI and, and things like that yeah so I, I, brides brides don't care if I'm honest brides you know they, they see the letters behind the name and they don't care they see the awards they think great they don't care but what they care about is the result of the fellowships and the awards in the imagery that I'm taking today so it's not a direct uh, link, but they, you know, it, without going through the process, my images wouldn't be how they are now. So there's in like an indirect uh, appreciation of, of the fellowships by looking at the work that I'm producing. I think I think that, that's the. Yeah, but take the letters away, they don't care. Uh, thanks to uh, Scott Johnson, 
one of our friends of the show who's uh, featured in the summer holiday month this year. Another to come next week. Who to choose? Who to choose? Well, on my other podcast, Photography Daily, our new season, the Friday edition is now The Photo Walk and a starring guest in one. And this week we're walking the Trans-Pennine Trail with your mailbag, picking up the route in Leeds by the old docks and armoury. When I say walking the TPP, it's really just a part of it, very small part, because to walk the whole thing would be way over 200 miles. And my guest back for part two of his story, Edmund Terracopian. We're talking about having a passion for this thing that we do. I never want photography to become a job for me, as in a nine-to-five job. I've seen colleagues who are nine-to-five photographers. If it's, you know, ten minutes past five o'clock when they've put their cameras in their bag and Big Ben topples out of St. Elizabeth's Tower and bounces across the river, <laughs> they wouldn't take a picture of it. And we try to unpick what street photography really is. To me, street photography is daily life photographed journalistically, i.e. not tampered with, not posed up, not set up. It's things that happen for real through day-to-day living and it's finding interesting moments within what is usually actually a mundane thing. Plus there's inspiration from other photographers all the way through the show including New York photographer Michelle Del Sol who shares how to deal with tricky portrait sitters. All that on the New Look Friday Photo Walk Show. On Friday, funny And over on the Photography Daily Patreon channel, the 52nd More Show. We always have an extra show per week. And this Saturday, what happens when you find yourself in a photographic fug or lull, if you want the the British equivalent. Right, back to the questions. Kev, you're going first. Okay, this is from from Paul Robson, and we may have missed it. But uh, he said, We're, I'm going to visit London in August. Are there any recommended exhibitions worth a look? Uh, so sorry if we missed it. But wow. um, what I was going to say is uh, Photo London is always excellent. But I think that's mm-hmm. September. I think it starts in September. But if you are in London and, and you know, there's uh, the Time Out website will tell you everything that's going on. And they yeah. do have an arts area on there that you can find out all of the exhibitions and all that kind of stuff. But if you just want a great gander, go to the Photographer's Gallery um, just behind Oxford Street. It's a brilliant place. Take your credit card, buy loads of books. Um, (laughs) You know, there's there's, there's always some stuff going on there. There's usually an exhibition upstairs. The bookstore is in the basement. They've got a nice coffee shop. Support them. You know, it's a good good old place. Nice quiet place to go and and have a a nice old photographic jolly time. I like the Haywood Gallery as well. That's a bit more art. Haywood Gallery, yeah. Haywood, yeah. At the South, yeah. South Bank Centre, that isn't it? That's a good one. National Portrait Gallery usually has some kind of photography exhibition going on at some yeah. point as well. Um, and Saatchi, sometimes there's... there's, there's um, actually, if you go along that road, what's that, uh, Sloan Square? Is that the Chelsea Road there? Just a bit further King's up on... Road. Uh, is it King's Road? Up, up so. Further up on the left, you'll find it. There's a, there's a photo gallery there that usually has fantastic um stuff from um from 60s london and, and stuff that's what I, I always happen to see when i'm there as musicians and stuff like that oh i wish i could remember the name of the place brilliant worth a walk up there near near the sarchi gallery as well isn't it that mm, yeah so, lots but the do. time time out magazine the time out website yeah. is excellent yeah. it really does give you everything yeah, yeah uh right what have i got here um boys i've been listening uh now for the duration does that mean the duration do you just mean one show for for the whole show or right from the start when did we start kev how long ago well this is what number is this episode 190 one, i think nine, no no we're further 195 i think this one. Oh my god we've yeah. got a 200 anniversary coming up it's bearing down on us kev we're like a turtles what 
turtles or tortoises. They live tortoises. Oh, 200, don't they? Wondering what you were talking about then. No, we started, it was a February. It is weird actually having a tortoise because we look at our tortoise called George, who's become Georgie actually. We didn't really, we didn't, uh, we didn't look at the gender. Well, we've, we've only just learned how to tell that George is a Georgie. Anyway, despite... How do you, how do you tell? Uh, you, they have slightly longer... No, okay, they have slightly longer um, tails and they're thinner. They're going to a point and various other things about markings. But we always refer to George as George, really. But it's funny to look at George and think, you're going to be here well after I've gone. Yeah. Because <laughs> George will still be looking back thinking, well, where did the family go? One minute they were here and now that everybody's gone. Make sure you leave them some food when you go. Oh, we do. Oh, you mean when, when I go-go? When you go-go, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the point. I'm um, sorry, you were saying. Um, I can't remember what we were saying. <laughs> How long have we been here? Tortoise. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So we started February 2018. Was it? No, would it 2017? Maybe. Have to look it up. No, it wasn't one year before the pandemic. It was two years. It was at least two years before pandemic. Was it? I don't know. Yeah, we'll look it up. Wow, Mrs. Stevenson would know. Yeah. Um, so I've been listening for the duration. Love, love the Mondays, but I'm sure you'll add yada yada. If I start to praise with too much aplomb, I have a landscape question. Not literal landscape, but the landscape of photography. Will this change as our time in lockdowns end, revealing a very different kind of industry where we take on more than our initial genres to spread the creativity? All the best to you both. Niall Carsley. Uh, I suppose he means by that, are we going to have to think about, we've talked about this a lot, I know, about not having all our eggs in firmly in one basket. Um, uh, yeah, I can... The the outpouring of your breath there suggests that you still don't have the answer to this one properly. No, I don't think there is an answer to it, is there really? I also don't think that... I think most wedding photographers are busy now, busier again. Yeah. I have to admit, I've laughed at some, some things I've seen online. The very same people who are complaining about not getting you know any support, state aid, no work, what we're meant to do, blah 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 blah, and now complaining that they're too busy, too much work, <laughs> you know. But but I mean, not complaining in a, oh, you know, it's great to be really busy. I'm knackered, but it's you know it's really good to be back in the saddle. But well, this is ridiculous. My my client wants me to stay till me, you know, I'd agreed yeah. to stay till midnight, but I'm I'm going to tell him I can only stay till eight o'clock because I've got three weddings in a row, <laughs> and then he's expecting me to stay till midnight. Yeah. I mean, what does he expect? You know, doesn't he know that we're you know we're we're in this brutal time yeah I'm like it is just a, go till midnight it is a bit like that <laughs> i i have to say that i've just thrown caution to the wind with stuff like that and think well if i need to stay longer i'll stay longer now let's get the story yeah I, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean I, th- I think um an element of organizing yourself into proper uh, in, in, into the way that you used to structure your business and how long you'll stay for people should should probably return. But at the moment, just happy to have the, the blooming work, Kev. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, going back to the original question, yeah, I, I, you know, who knows? I think everybody, you know, would always do a little bit of different stuff if they needed to, yeah. uh, if they wanted to. Uh, you know, I've always kind of, I mean, I, I've done some commercial work recently, which is not something that I've ever, you know, thought I would enjoy and, you know probably isn't something i do enjoy particularly but you know i've done it it's another string to the bow isn't it yeah but yeah i'm not gonna i I don't ever see myself being anything other than a uh you know documentary wedding photographer in terms of photography and an educator of some sort so the idea of doing uh, extra commercial work and opening up part of your website to say i do portraits because there was a time with the with the new studio that you've got there that you were thinking that would become more portrait based perhaps well yeah actually that's still on the back burner and it may well well it will it's, it has to happen at some point because i've got that 
studio you know but uh, but that i would enjoy that you know that's i think the question is more about you know is it you know w- would you take on work that you didn't particularly want to do just to kind of get the the shillings in and that that's the dilemma isn't it but yeah the portrait stuff is still that's still on my to-do list and and because i do you know i love using that gfx and and making you know what i, what I would consider you know nice black and white gritty portraits of people yeah, like yeah. that yeah. Well, you you started um, photographing the people of Malmesbury, didn't you? I, mean, I know it started with your mates, you know, the do- men. Do- Dodgy Dave and Postman yeah. Matt, and um, <laughs> not Dodgy Dave, <laughs> DIY Dave. You're, I think you're talking. DIY you're Dave, thinking sorry. about Naughty Norman. <laughs> Naughty Norman. That's sorry. I'm trying to keep up with the all the, all the blokes. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, yeah, that was good. I liked that, and uh, yeah, I'd like to do more of that. But of course, you know, just like everybody else, once 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 everything started, you know, we had eighteen months of scratching our bums, not really doing much. I mean, you did you did a hell of a lot with the photography daily and all that kind of stuff, and you know, I did different projects and everything. But then, of course, when things started up again, boom, it's like, oh well, no, I haven't got well, time to do anything it was, else. It was worth. I had to readdress the amount of time I was spending on podcasts. Yes, I did, whilst also maintaining the fact that that I see as my as my future i do i see that as my future so it's kind of like i had to say right what can i do and what can i do that is of subsequent uh, value that i can then start to accelerate again and i think we've all had to do that with our photography and our lives and everything haven't we mm. um it was a famine and feast <laughs> it has been for many people hasn't it complete famine and then for all yeah. those people moaning about staying an extra hour for the wedding photography, complete feast. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, yeah. you never want that to happen again the way that it did, that you think, oh, my eggs, are, here we go, and another nasty's come over and I've got to stop my business all, all over again. Why didn't I do X? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, what, you know, one thing's for sure, if this kind of thing happens again in the, in the near future, yeah. there won't be the support, there won't be, you know, the... There will be a. It will be a case of well, you know, yeah. you need to learn lessons from last time, you know, for for industries all over. So hopefully it won't happen again. Though. Well, we're, we're going to come and live with you, Kev. All of us. That's in. fine. Yeah. You can. I'll move into the studio. Nice here. Well, there's a stable we can move into. <laughs> Star will be in there, ready and waiting. Right. Um, book for this week. Now we have to sort of turn the tone slightly differently because yeah. this, this is um, this is quite a heavy book, isn't it? Well, I don't mean that physically, although it is quite a large book, isn't it? But I'm. I'm I mean that mentally in the in the subject matter that you have. It's um it's it's a lot more serious than the stuff we've looked at out of late. Oh, much more so. It's it's actually a heartbreaking book. Yeah. Um and this was also gifted to us by um Brad Wakefield. So I'll read the I'll read the blurb, uh, which uh, which I usually do. So the book is called A Requiem, uh, by the photographers who died in the Vietnam and Indochina War uh wars. Uh, so between the height of the French Indochina War in the 50s and the fall of the uh, and the fall of Saigon in 1975, 135 photographers from all sides of the conflict are recorded as missing or have been killed. 135. Amazing. Uh, this book is a memorial to those men and women, and in many cases it includes the last photographs they took. Horst Fass and Tim Page. Uh, other people who put the book together, two photographers who worked and were wounded in Vietnam, have gathered many thousands of pictures by those who were killed. Their searches have taken them through the archives in Hanoi, as well as those of Western agencies. In some cases, families have generously provided access to private files where unknown bodies of work were uh, have uh, lain unseen for more than uh, 40 years. The list of the dead includes some of the greatest photographers of the century, such as Robert Kappa and Larry Burroughs, and some who have been working in Vietnam for only a matter of days before their deaths. A number of Cambodian photographers working for the Western press were executed. Other photographers like Sean Flynn and Dana Stone disappeared. 
Their loss inspired Tim Page to begin this memorial. The resulting sequence of photographs follows the course of the war and the transformation of the serene landscapes of Cambodia and Vietnam into scenes of nightmarish devastation. At the moments of intense battle, one is reminded not only of the courage of the photographers, but of the compassion amid the brutality of war. These photographers were intimate with war to a degree that may well be denied future generations. That intimacy led to their deaths. And their photographs are their legacy. Yeah, it, physically, it's quite a big, chunky book as well. It's a yeah. beautifully, beautifully put together book. Um, beautifully, the opening cover, uh, the ins- inside of the cover is the uh, the names of the photographers featured. Uh, I, I won't read them all out. There, it's quite well done in terms of it. It highlights the country they're from. And then it gives gives the name. So, uh, for example, uh, Australia starts with Australia. Alan Hirons, uh, Austria, Genslucker. Um, there's a whole load from Britain, and then France as well. Japan, Germany, Singapore, United States. A lot from the United States. But interestingly, probably a lot of the ones that you uh, people won't have heard of are from uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. And that's a reference to the uh, agency photographers that were on the ground there, um, you know, who, who also lost their lost their lives. There is quite a lot of, like, brutal photography yeah. in this book. Uh, this isn't something you're going to pick up and, you know, from an inspiration point of view, this is something you pick up because you have uh, total respect not only for the photographers, but for everybody that was involved, you know, all the innocent people um, that were that were involved in it. And some of these pictures are very, very hard to look at. Some of them are far more open and, and ones you may have seen, uh, in you know, in the press. Uh, you know, one page, 194, for example, is a very famous picture of the... Uh, uh, somebody falling from a helicopter, a... Um, a soldier falling from a helicopter there's a lot of i mean you you really it's intense you these photographs are in the middle of these firefights there's explosions there's all sorts and you're you're there the photographer is there and they were made often with with in in pretty much all all the time weren't they manually they were made manually oh yeah the work you're you're going to be thinking on your feet as well yeah but it's it's the it's the sense of the moment when you're there that really really makes you think my god these these people these men and women were truly doing something that you know we i mean we scoff at street photography and people telling us not to take pictures of our kids uh you know and then we you know we chide back with that as well it's our right you know we're taking we're telling the stories of history yeah yeah i mean yeah there's a point there but actually these are really the stories these are the history stories, you know, and these these photographers, of course, it was their jobs in most cases, um, you know, so they, they, they jumped on the plane, they went, they got sent there to do their job. But it's critical that I think the point made in the in the introduction to the book is that probably we won't see this type of conflict photography again. You only have to see what's going on in Afghanistan again to realize that conflicts aren't going to go away because... Uh, you know, the world's the people in the world, there are people in the world that, that just won't allow that to happen. But I don't think we will see this kind of intimate conflict photography again, because war these days is, is very different. It's often, um, you know, propaganda based and, you, you know, you just don't get you don't see these types of images any longer. Well, certainly Vietnam, very personal ones. Vietnam changed the face of, of the way people um, were permitted to take or the places people were permitted to, to, to make pictures. 
because initially, of course, um, everything was was fair game photographically. And then, then I think people realised, high command certainly realised that this this was n- not a way to win hearts and minds. A lot of what was coming out. That's why I think uh, conflict photography has changed so much. Yeah, it's it's really it's a real difficult book, an important book. But really difficult. How much of it is uh, colour and how much is black and white? Kev? Is, is it a bit of a mi- mixture? It is. A, it's mostly black and white, but there are some coloured pictures. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's. Uh, I mean, it's just brutal. But yeah, there, there's. I would say ninety percent of it is black and white. But there, there's some colour, and of course, it's all film. You know, it's. Yeah. It is. There's a. There's a reality not only to the to the story in the pictures, but also the. Um, you, you know the, the the development of the film. You know, mm. it's. There's no over-processed filters going on in this. You know, there's no, will this look better on Instagram and, you know, Facebook has squashed it and all that kind of stuff. This is, you know, this is as it was and how it was processed. And often these guys would carry the cans, the film with them until they could get back somewhere or post or get them back to the, the labs. Well, there was a story um, of Tom, you know, Tom, Tom Stoddart having to get film out. Um, where, where was he based? Uh, it could have been Beirut. It might have been Beirut. Um, but he uh, had gotten to know Marie Helvin, of course, who lost her life later on um, as, mm-hmm. a, as a journalist. And uh, they, were, they were actually smuggling film out uh, in her underwear at a time where they thought, well, nobody's, nobody's going to ironically, nobody's going to check her. The way you had to think on your feet, even with, uh, as, as Tom and Marie, I think at the time, would have described in slightly more humorous fashion, the way you had to think on your feet as somebody in these zones. To, and, and a lot of them don't really come, they don't come at all from a background where they, they expected to be thrust into, into war. Uh, Tim Page, uh, I, I remember reading, I've, I've just looked it up what I found about him. I was reading about him recently. When I finally left Europe, I was planning to be in Australia for Christmas. I got as far as Lahore and West Pakistan. After I left England for Europe, I worked at a Heineken brewery and a chewing gum factory. I worked as a chamber, a chambermaid, a sous chef, and also smuggled hash in Pakistan. It wasn't something he expected to end up doing as a living, being in war. And of course, you know, the thing is, we're, you know, we're concentrating on the photos in the book, but, and, you know, the photos are, there's, there's a lot of dead people in here, but what we have to remember is the person taking the photo yeah. also died. That's that's something that is you know you have to consider when you're looking at each of these pictures the photographer went on to to lose their lives yeah, yeah. it's uh it's it's a i mean it's a wonderful book tough read we'll of course put the uh, the links on the uh, the show page today and uh, thanks also to brad for uh, for giving yeah. that to, to to the show as well thank you very much brad right questions where do we go after that kev oh. um have you have you got something or uh, yeah i got one this is colin monteith right. and he says do you have an image that for some reason you didn't or couldn't capture that still haunts you uh he goes on to say back about 20 years ago i was passing an older house which had overgrown gardens and generally looked kind of haunted yeah. As I paused and pondered its story, about a hundred cats streamed out of a pet door and fanned out towards me on the front lawn. To this day, it haunts me in that I didn't have a camera or smartphone uh, around, although smartphones wouldn't have been around then. Uh, About a week later on the TV news, it showed the city moving in and helping an elderly lady into a mental health facility, plus removing about 300 cats. Uh, yeah, so and that was the one, so have you got any yeah. pictures you can remember that you didn't take, or sorry, moments that you didn't capture that you you wish you had? Not really, I'd, I'd not not along those lines. That's quite a moment, isn't it? What he's describing there. Often past things that I think, oh, why didn't I stop and and grab a picture of that? Just because I'm genuinely interested in it. 
coming home a couple of weeks ago from Wales. There was a, we were right. Um, is your Kia Satnav, by the way, like ours? It sends you down the the oddest routes. Mine's mine's pretty good. No. Are you sure you haven't switched off avoid motorways? <laughs> well, no, I'm sure I've got it on the right. It's in honestly B roads, everything. It's like. I'll send you that way. And I'm sure I've got it set up correctly, but we, en- we ended up going across this uh, between well, between two mountains in, in the sort of Snowdonia area. Beautiful place, isn't it, that? But there was this little bridge right in the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking, why would you build a bridge there? It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go over anything. They're the moments where I don't stop, and then I, I drive away thinking... I wish I got a picture of that. I know it's not a mind-blowing moment like the cat one you were just talking about. but How can you have a bridge that doesn't go over anything? It must have gone over something, otherwise it wouldn't be a bridge. That's what I mean, Kev. It was in the middle of nowhere. I looked to the left. We all looked to the left thought, why is there a bridge there? What does that do in the middle of this valley that has nothing in it but sheeps? As they, I wish as they that would be I, called by I, Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> That's very funny, that programme, yeah. The Farm. Uh, I'm not a big fan of him personally, but it's a very good programme. Um, I wish, because I've photographed several births, um, but I never photographed any of our own kids. I did oh, I did some of the yeah. before and after stuff, but yeah. not the actual thing. And yes. Gemma, Gemma yeah. says that she wished that yeah. I, I'd done that as well. At the time, she might not have done. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, perhaps. But, but yeah, I do wish. So very fiercely, fiercely... Um, do you know, well, if we're going to sort of exchange stories like that, there is, um, I had my camera with me the day I saw my mum compass mentis for the last time. I remember walking away in the ward and looking back at her and there was this, uh, she was very ill at the time and, and hadn't really communicated at all. But for one moment, one moment, she waved. And the kind of wave way that I remember of being a child being wa- waved off to school, it was like that one split moment of, of absolute normality with mum. And I had my camera and I did think to turn around and, and take a picture as she was waving. But something stopped me because I thought, no, you can't do that. You're in a hospital. And there are other people close by. I wish I had. So there we go. Now there's a, yeah. Over and above yeah. the bridge moment, that, that. Yes, that probably is the moment. Yeah. 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 And, and actually, it's funny you said that about the, um, you know, I can't, I'm in a hospital. And I, I, I'm, Gemma always chides me because... I usually say, if ever I see something, I'm like, oh, a proper photographer would be taking pictures of that. And she, and she's always, like, having to go at me for saying that. But yeah. but that's what I feel. I do feel like sometimes, you know, I think, well, a proper photographer would be doing that. I'm not on about the, the one with your mum and the wave necessarily, but, you know, stuff, just yeah. stuff that's going on. And whether you just can't be bothered, don't have a camera with you, whatever, you know, I'm like, I always, I always think about um, Edmund Terracopian and, and yes. you never, ever, yeah. ever, ever, ever see him with that camera around his neck, yes. ever. Yeah, and, uh, and he, he would know, use it. That's a proper yeah. photographer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Oh, Kev, let's just go off and open our coffee bar. Yeah, should we do that? And we'll show pictures of Edmunds. <laughs> yeah, we just have loads of pictures of Edmund Terry other people's, the yeah. <laughs> uh, but you are right, he is that kind of photographer. I wonder what it is that makes some photographers just able to think, right, that, I need it, mine, completely sort of focused in, in every sense of the word, tunnel-visioned, if you like, to, to create that moment. Doesn't matter what else is happening outside the frame. You know, I was thinking about something the other day that's slightly related to this. I, got, I picked up my X100V and I changed, I've forever... Ever since I've been using feature film cameras, I've switched off the shutter sound, like made it totally silent. Yeah. And I've always thought that's the right thing to do. And actually, I switched my X100V to the loudest possible yeah, shutter. I've got that for my photo walk program. Yeah. 
Yeah, but but I did it because for some very very weird reason, yeah, it makes me feel like a proper photographer. Isn't it's that interesting? Very bizarre. Yeah, you only click once because it goes click, <laughs> uh, you know, and and it just worked. It just made yeah. me. I wouldn't do it at weddings or anything, you know. I would still be using it silent then, but. But when I was I was just pondering around the garden and stuff like that, and uh, and and I was you know it definitely made me think more about the picture. And I was you know it's purposely you know I had it on single shot. I didn't mm. have it on uh, you, you know multiple bursts or anything like that. And yeah, one one click and the, the noise of it yeah made me think yeah because there's something tangible about that. You know it's 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 audible, but it, it's almost tangible, isn't it? And uh, so and then I put the camera down and, and went out and read about Edmund Terracopian. <laughs> well, I've been doing the same with the the well. You, you don't have a choice with the R four that I've got the uh, the film camera. It is and again going back a couple of weeks when we first talked about me being down in those mines with that shutter, it was literally a clunk to move the film on, and yeah. here we go again. And it and you don't find yourself over well. You can't overshoot anyway, and certainly not that scenario. I was within the in the mines trying to find any form of light at all. But there is something to it. Yeah, it would be nice if the cameras, especially the X100V, if it had a proper. It doesn't quite yeah. sound like a, a, a mechanical camera. It's a funny noise. It? It's it's a digitised yeah. version of it. Yeah, um, I'm sure there must be yeah. a way of making that sound nicer. Oh, it probably is. I mean, I'm not interested in making it sound like a film camera in terms of winding the film or anything. But but that kaplunk. Yeah. You know that that kaplunk that you only get, I think, when. There's a mechanical yeah. presser inside the shutter button that goes clunk. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Have you got time for one more? Uh, well, just do, do this really quickly. Richard Viedekind. Hi, guys. I'm not sure if we did this one, but uh, this is probably one for Kev as he's commented on the topic in his blog and on the podcast. His advocacy of professional mode seemed to surprise Neil and a good few of his followers, including me. My question is, seeing the same metering system is used in program aperture shutter modes, is there any difference in the calculated exposures? If I set my camera in program and use program shift to scroll through shutter aperture pairs determined by the meter, aren't I essentially doing aperture exposure shutter exposure when I select either an f-stop or a shutter speed in the sequence? All being equal shouldn't really matter, should it? No, it shouldn't really matter, but he's right. So I, I, I'm not sure whether he's using a Fujifilm camera or not uh, because he's talking about program shift, which is you, you can do program shift, but mostly um, like when I used my Canon system years and years ago, I would use program shift to, yeah. to do exactly that. I would yeah. switch between aperture priority and what have you, essentially changing the aperture uh, by shifting it. But what I'm referring to is fully P mode. So where I'm allowing the camera to take full control of aperture, shutter speed and ISO, it's making all of those choices. So that, that's slightly different to program shift in that I'm not controlling any of those things um so yeah slightly different but yeah there's no re you do what you want you know that's that's do what gets you the picture there's no right or wrong thank you richard for your um for your email in there and and that's it for another week um we could do with more of your questions as always send them to well there's two ways you can send them to um to us via the the facebook page in the the post that's especially for your questions that's in there um or you could email them in to click at fujicast .co.uk click at fujicast.co.uk send your questions your stories about your work and anything of interest you think listeners will enjoy or learn from 
um, via, via the show. Thank you to those that support the show by Patreon. If you can do it, fantastic for those who feel it's appropriate, of course, not just for us, but for your pocket too, for the donations will help this show stay here as an ongoing project. Music I forgot to say last week, and I should always do this, from Blue Wednesday. We're supporting music from the incredible artlist.io, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye, Kev. Bye. The FujiCast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way. <laughs> <laughs>